Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. So, Ian Gordon, welcome to CTO Confessions. It's great to have you on board, sir. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. What do you do and who do you work for? Well, uh, I am lucky enough to work for Highways England. They are the infrastructure owner for Britain's, well, not Britain's, England's, as the name suggests, England's strategic road network, um, which is basically all of the big motorways and A roads that connect um, the beautiful cities of Britain. Um, I am head of data architecture and engineering, um, working within the CDO division. Um, and I usually describe myself as the as the chief data plumber of highway. <laughs> yeah. My job is to get all the data into the right place as, as effectively as possible. Brilliant. Okay. So I've got to jump to that in a minute again. I just got a curiosity question around CDO. What, what does CDO mean to the audience? Uh, CDO, yeah. So chief data officer, um, that's the boss. Um, hope one day to be one myself. Um, and, and yeah, so we, we sit within the IT department um, uh, I'm the first head of data architecture here working for the first CDO. So we're really kind of working in a bit of a greenfield site uh, with an opportunity to really change how, how the organization works and, and bring a much more data focused perspective to, to the uh, to the organization. Brilliant. That's great. So before we kind of drill down into that, I'm really interested in the kind of journey to where you are now. I mean, what what was that like? I, I mean, data is something that makes my eyes kind of go cross-eyed and uh, I tend to kind of uh, you know, with all, with the amount of stuff you need to kind of deal with, what got you to this place? I mean, I've taken quite a meandering path. Uh, I never really thought I'd be working in IT, um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm still kind of early days in my career. I would like to think um, some of the people you have on this podcast are, you know, they've been doing amazing things for decades upon decades. Uh, I, again, one day I will hope to be there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've just felt like as as I worked in the infrastructure sector, um, it became really obvious that a we were we as a sector were a little bit behind or often quite behind um, the sort of frontier of technology, and, and therefore there's a really good opportunity to to play catch up and, and really help how uh, the built environment works for people. Um, and and you know, as a relatively young person working in the industry, if you're handy with data early in your career, it tends to be a, a kind of a shortcut to, to getting places and, and and opening up new opportunities. So I kind of just followed followed that inclination as, as best I could. And uh, and, and here I am. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah, don't have a computer science degree, um, studied geography in university, uh, originally decided to become a quantity surveyor, which was a bad idea um, and, and kind of continued to stumble in this direction until I ended up in, in Highways England. And do you love data? I've got to ask that because I have to be honest, it frightens me, you know, the amount of data and I kind of get all confused with it all. Do you do you love huge amounts of data? I guess the, the correct answer is I love what it makes possible, right? Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. So, why, so this... Why are, you, why are you frightened of it? What's the... What's oh, the, yeah. What's it's... Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because uh, I've worked on some data projects and uh, I think I don't, some people have that kind of brain where they can uh, span lots of different kind of themes and threads and patterns and what have you. 
I just kind of shut down. I just go and I go scurrying back into a hole, you know. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's important that like data used to be this niche thing, right? That only the kind of beautiful mind people did, like bits of string on the wall, trying to trying to get all the patterns to come together. Like that that can't be data for the twenty first century. Like data has to be something that's accessible to everybody because we only get value from it if lots and lots of people are using it. So we got we got to overcome overcome your fears. Yes, absolutely. I think it's the tools as well. I have to confess that data stuff was in an Excel sheet, lots of Excel ah, sheets, very yeah. big Excel sheets. After and uh, maybe some of the audience that listen will know when I was on that project because they know they know the the uh, the pain and the journey I went through there. But so coming back to um, Highways England, Highways England. So coming back to Highways England, what's the problem that your department are trying to solve? The slogan of the organization is is connecting the country. Um, so we are a public funded organization um, and therefore fundamentally uh, the, the, the function of Highways England is to create the greatest amount of connectivity um, mm. with the least amount of money, um, with the least amount of collateral damage, if you will. Um, yeah. so how do we, given, given we, we work in a a world of finite budgets, given that we are spending everybody's tax money, how do we best invest in making uh, our road network more effective, more responsive, um, easier to use, more accessible um, within the budgetary constraints that we face? So that's great, Ian. Um, so where, where are you now with this project? How's it going? I mean, look, the, ro- the roads have been there for a while now. Um, I think what's what's changing in the, the 21st century is, you know, if you look back at the motorways, I'm probably going to do motorway aficionados a disservice here, but but to you and I, I'm not a, not a roads person per se, if you look back at a highway 50 years ago, it probably doesn't look a whole lot different from what it looks like now. Like, yeah. maybe the signs look a bit different. Um, but underneath the skin, there's some pretty fundamental changes, even now as to how it's operated, you know, um, in terms of uh, traffic modeling and, and controlling the network and, and responding to emerging uh, emerging problems uh, more effectively. Um, but I think if you look forward 50 more years, that change is going to be even more pronounced and it, it's going to change in a way that means that we can't take for granted the role of Highways England or any infrastructure owner being the same as it has been for decades now. So we're yeah. going to be in a world where, you know, one way or another, there's going to be a vast change in the patterns of fuel consumption. Um, you know, with the UK government's remit to move away from uh, petrol fueled vehicles, um, you know, we're going to have electric cars buzzing around the network sooner rather than later, I hope. And, and maybe more fundamentally, those cars are going to be more autonomous. Um, yes. so it, and that that begins to make increasingly controlling the flow of traffic in the country more of a data problem. Like there's still going to be the the routine kind of let's make sure there's no potholes in the road type of uh, question to answer. And, yes. and there's obviously a data input to that as well. But the question of how do we regulate and manage the flow of autonomous vehicles across the country most effectively is a, is a fundamentally different question to what we have to deal with today. Um, and the role of 
every organization in doing that, whether it's ourselves or Waze or Google or whoever, is is also open for debate. And it's it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how that how that pans out. So, you know, working in a data function within Highways England is how do we what kind of capability do we build within the business so that we incrementally become a more data capable, data savvy organization so that we can continue to add value and continue to serve the public um, as these pretty, you know, pretty epic changes happen in the industry. Yeah, it sounds like um, you're preempting the changes that are, they're already happening, but there's going to be even more kind of going forward. A a data-driven policy around, uh, you know, the the infrastructure, the uh, the, the nation. Um, So what are the challenges you're facing right now? Or is it all going smoothly? No, yeah, everything's great. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> I think there's there's a few levels to it. So, like like any industry, the particularly public sector industry, there's a lot of there's a lot of technical debt, and so we've got a lot of work to do to just create a kind of baseline level of capability where we know where our data is, we know it's secure, um, we're able to access it, we're able to make use of it, um, and we're able to build new services on top of it. Um, and really the, the day-to-day focus of my work is is trying to put the infrastructure in place to do that, taking advantage of cloud computing in particular, um, platform as a service solutions in particular, to try and um, kind of leapfrog what the traditional kind of data center proprietary solutions that we built 20 years ago haven't been able to do for us. Um, sure. And I think the the big change there is in the past, when an organization like Highways England had a problem, they would go and buy a system to fix that problem. And it would probably fix that one particular problem pretty well. And and I think as we start to, going back to what I was saying earlier, have to deal with the network as a big, complicated system. Mm. Some of the things we're going to have to do involve bringing data from lots of different places to create a coherent picture of how the network's functioning. So... It's not just about the condition of our assets. It's not just about the traffic flow. It's not just about the weather. It's not just about, you know, customer sentiment. It's about all of those things interacting yeah. with each other in, in, a, in a vast and, and complicated system. And I think that requires a, a level of data management and computing power uh, and flexibility of application that, that just hasn't been possible to date. Yeah. Um, and that then brings you into digital twin world where... Yeah. If you have that level of data confidence and management within an organization like Highways England, well, we're only a tiny part of the picture. You know, you've got to think about all of the other local authorities that manage our roads. You've got to think about other transportation options like network rail and the aviation sector. You've got to think about the power and the water and, and the telecommunications networks that make sure those things can continue to operate on a day-to-day basis. And that's when you get into the national digital twin world of how did those systems of systems interact to mm. fundamentally provide the things that you and I take for granted every day, which is you can get on the tube and go to a station and then change for a train and get to another city and then rent a car and drive to, a, I don't know, a music festival or something. And yeah. most of the time, if you're organized enough, <laughs> yes, yeah, and, and not overly intoxicated, that that process. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. But you get, yeah. you get the idea. It's, it's, I, I think it's exciting stuff. You have to be a bit of a nerd to get into that. But I, I think I think you 
Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I love the idea of this. I love the idea of digital twins. Uh, I love the idea of simulating uh, what your system is capable of doing. Uh, maybe introducing, um, uh, even from a software perspective, misuse cases, you know, where things go wrong mm-hmm. and, and how the system kind of deals with that. Uh, so I'm really curious around this kind of digital twin. How, how far are you with that? Is that something that you're kind of simulating right now? Uh, I think the important thing about the digital twin is that we don't do it in isolation. Um, so there is the this National Digital Twin Program, which is being run by the Centre for Digital Built Britain, based in Cambridge. Brilliant. Um, and they're kind of the, uh, I'm going to use the phrase thought leaders and immediately regret using it, but they, they're kind of setting the agenda for what is the value to society of a network of digital twins? Like, how does this actually result in the kind of journey I just described being better or more reliable or, or safer? Yeah. And then what they're trying to do, which I really like, is almost create a, an ecosystem of, of peer organizations. So as, as long as we and, you know, Network Rail and other big infrastructure organizations are building in a similar way, we should be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together to start to represent how these things work in concert. Um, and it's a it's a big challenge in the sense that there's bits of existing practice already in the industry uh, that we need to kind of take and augment and pull together to make it work. So what I mean by that is there's a lot of investment over the last few decades in something called BIM, uh, Building Information Modeling, which is about how do we capture data during the construction process so we know what we've built and we don't like we can deconflict construction and we can we can use models to help us design more effectively rather than making mistakes in the real world where it's expensive yes. so one one could argue that's kind of a, a big area of where the digital twin concept has, has developed from and then there's there's other similar areas like uh, areas like transportation modeling you know how do we know where to build the roads how do we know what kind of configuration to build that's a part of the industry that's always used simulations to solve the problem yeah. and then increasingly you're seeing with uh mobile communications uh sensor networks that sort of thing that whereas previously we only really had aggregate information on how the network was used like how many cars passed here in a year we now have like to the to the minute or to the second information on exactly who's using our network and other networks for what purposes um and really to get the digital twin right you have to marry all of those together so you need all that construction information to know what's out there you need the the sensor information to know how it's being used in the moment and then you need that kind of simulation logic planning logic to say okay given that we have this kind of asset in this kind of situation what do we need to do differently to make it work better? How do we respond to uh, to issues? Um, you know, how do, how do we act as a more effective organization? And then you can take the the human processes, of which you know we have many, and try to understand how to mold those better to, yeah. to get the result that we need. And, and it's really really early days for that stuff. But what what we're trying to do is put the fundamentals in place, and the fundamentals are as I said earlier, accessibility to our own information and fundamentally some sort of logical model of how it all hangs together. You know, it's not enough just to toss all of the data into a data lake and like some sort of miracle happens. You actually have to understand how all of these disparate dis- data sets relate to each other. Um, yeah. And we've been doing a fair bit of work 
in terms of ontologies or knowledge graphs to try and create a more meaningful representation of how our organization looks from a data perspective and how that can then be used to fuel decisions and, and, and help make sure that these digital twins that we eventually create have some sort of coherent, meaningful logic to them so that they do actually accurately represent the real world rather than just being some yeah. sort of fictitious concept, if you will. That's right. I, I'm, I'm curious around this. I, I love this idea of this data kind of coming together. Uh, and is the idea that you kind of pull the data into one place or do you just kind of like pull it from from various aspects of your your uh, your reach, you know, um, other systems? I, I think opinion is divided on that. Point. I've had I've had I've had I've had that challenge. Um, so my my approach to date has been to to centralize to basically build a sort of standard um, data platform in the cloud uh, and and make sure that as many as possible of the source systems that we're using on a day to day basis are pushing copies of their information into the cloud on a regular basis so that it can be used for for analytics and, and downstream applications. Um, and, and that's a slightly, you know, we're using modern technology, but that's maybe a slightly old fashioned way of looking at things. I, ideally, you could have this kind of beautifully loosely coupled mesh of applications where because they all have APIs, you can basically run queries across them without ever having to duplicate the data. Um, I think from an architectural perspective, that's a much more appealing way of doing things because mm. you don't have the overhead of having this centralized data store. You don't have the redundancy of information. Yes. Uh, so we have this kind of legacy, not just a technical debt legacy, but um, a procurement legacy where because we haven't procured with data aggregation in mind, because we haven't been a, an informed client in that respect, we kind of have to unwind some of those uh, discontinuities um, on an ongoing basis to get to that kind of point where we actually are able to use, yeah. use the vast majority of our own information. Fantastic. I've got that image now. You kind of mentioned earlier on, you're kind of like the data plumber. You know, you're trying to plumb all this data together. So uh, uh, so hopefully that'll, that'll get easier as time goes on. So Ian, this sounds fantastic. I'm really looking forward to seeing this kind of stuff. I can see this huge savings for the nation, making lives people's lives easier as well you know because getting letting helping people get from a to b uh you know and it all being data driven so what's the vision what's the what's the plan what's the roadmap like here are we looking uh, you know in 10 years from now 20 years from now i think it varies on on the outcome uh, we're we're a regulated industry so we tend to think in in five-year periods um and and, and rightfully every five-year period the, the government challenges us to prove how we're doing things better and, and more efficiently. So we're, we're currently two years into our current regulatory period. And, and the focus at the moment is uh, people use the phrase unlocking the power of data, which sounds a bit corny, but, but really that's it. We know we've got all this different, inf all this, all these various information sets locked away in different systems. Um, the unlocking part is, is, uh, is being able to collect them and, and, and use them to start taking advantage of business intelligence, data science, machine learning, um, automation to start just informing the day-to-day -day construction, maintenance and operation of the roads using yeah. the information that we already have. I think, and that's, that's playing catch up to other sectors, obviously. I think yeah. once you've done that, you start to look towards, okay, 
how do we how do we then start to get ready for this paradigm shift so given that we're moving to you know autonomous vehicles mobility as a service what what's our role there uh, what is the role of infrastructure um in um in that context and increasingly it's likely to be less about managing the physical assets particularly things like signs and, and more about providing contextual information to autonomous vehicles so there's this idea of the naked road where because the vehicles are autonomous and they know where they are and they know what the speed limits are at any given time you don't need a bunch of signs communicating visually to human beings but what you do need is 5g or wi-fi connectivity on the road so the vehicles can communicate to one another uh, and so that we can communicate information to those vehicles um so we're basically taking the person and the, the the signs out of the loop and just saying directly to the vehicles you know there's a traffic jam a mile up the road you can't see it because you're around a corner but you probably want to slow down right about now yeah. um, and that's a huge change in the role for a public sector organization and it, it's clearly one that it makes us just as much a data provider as as we are a, an infrastructure maintainer. Wow, the, the idea of these naked roads without signs or markings or or anything. I mean, that's that's quite a that is a huge shift. Yeah, um, and I'm also interested in the data that you collect. I, it, will that come from the vehicles as well? It, will that be integrated into this kind of future uh, data pooling? Yeah, uh, we we already get information from vehicles. Um, we use uh, we use aggregated, anonymized uh, information to to tell to inform us where people are in the network. Well, not not sorry, not so much where people are, but basically volumes of traffic. Yeah. And we we use that to calibrate the readings that we get from physical sensors, so induction loops buried in the road and, and number plate readers on the side of the road. Yeah. Um, and that gives us a fused data set that gives us a much more accurate view of how our network's being used in the moment. Um, there's also a, a European initiative that we are part of that allows, that provides a feed of information on event data from vehicles. So where vehicles are losing traction, say, or hydroplaning or, or otherwise having, having unexpected events, we, we can have, um, we can get real-time information on that. And I think obviously anonymized, like it's not going to tell you that any individual's yeah. car has had a problem. It's, it's on a, on an aggregated basis and that has the potential to change how we our level of awareness of the network and the timeliness of that awareness so it's, it's less about finding out that incidents have happened because you know you see a traffic jam on a on a video camera or because a a, a, a person on the road reports it to us it's more about you you know you know a matter of seconds after it's happened rather than a matter of minutes yeah. um but as with all of these things, getting the data is almost the easy part. It's about changing the processes um, around that so that we can actually take best use of that information. And, and that's kind of the that's the challenge for the next few years is we have all this data available to us now. How do we get the organization ready and able to make use of it? Fantastic. I love it. I, lo I love this. I'm looking forward to the naked roads and uh, and this data being used to save money for the uh, the taxpayer, you know, kind of thing. Because uh, I can see huge savings and making like people's lives e easier. So 
I'm interested in yourself now, Ian, you know, you, the person that's kind of behind all this data and the kind of passion around what, what makes you jump out of bed in the morning and go, woohoo, bring it, it on. Usually my toddler <laughs> screaming, to be honest. Um, and the, and the thought of a cup of coffee. Um, I've, I've always been motivated and I, I'm sure it, I think it probably comes across when I talk about this stuff. Like I find this stuff inherently interesting yep. and I, I like that it has this tangible um, connection back to like people's experience of the real world. Like, yeah, yeah it's all digital and data, but it's always hooked into um, like a physical thing. You know, I, I take the train, I get on buses. Um, you know, I want my world to be as effective as possible and as sustainable as possible and, and preferably you know, whilst I don't begrudge the government my taxes, I, I, I want to make sure it's, it's being used effectively. So that's that's definitely the, the motivation. I, I do worry that our generation has, and I don't mean this in an overly judgmental way, but there's people much, much smarter than me that have spent, you know, spent their life's effort, you know, figuring out ways of, I don't know, delivering pizza to people or getting people to gamble a bit more on, on, mm. on apps and that sort of thing. And, and I, I think... I kind of wish that more of the best minds of our generation had, had really invested in getting the real world to work more effectively. Yeah. And I'm also curious, Ian, around, uh, you know, how you roll as a leader. What kind of leader are you? What's worked for you in the past or hasn't worked for you in the past even? Uh, um, I think being stubborn hasn't worked for me in the past. I think most <laughs> people that I work with will tell you that I'm still pretty stubborn. Um, I think if I have a, a superpower as a as a kind of working person, it, it's my ability to to learn from others. Um, I'm very I'm, I'm probably better than most at admitting that I don't know things, particularly from a technical perspective, because I, I don't have that like epic strong computer science background. So I, I do get confused pretty quickly, mm. um, and I, I think I try and surround myself with people that that understand this stuff better than me and I, I kind of try and act as the vessel so that that technical expertise can be communicated and enacted as clearly and effectively as possible because um, you know anyone that's worked with technology um, will know that you know the people that pay the bills aren't always the technically savvy people um, and similarly the people that manage projects don't always intuitively understand the technologies either so it's about how do we take advantage of the those different um domains and, and get them to work together more effectively i think that's that's the exciting brilliant so on the podcast we have uh, a lot of uh, chief technology officers ctos um leading in the kind of data space is it different do, do you kind of notice any difference any nuances most most ctos will have a real depths of technical knowledge that that I you know couldn't even begin to comment on I think um, from a data perspective it's really it's almost useful to forget about the systems and the technology sometimes and actually just think about the the kind of types of information you're dealing with so you know when I when I joined highways England one of the things that people, did that really struck me is they always, whenever they were talking about a type of information, they always started the statement with the name of the system that that information came from, or the name of the type of system, at least, you know, it was never 
customer information, it was always CRM information. It was never traffic information, it was always Midas, Datex2 information. And that made it quite hard to get your head around what everyone was talking about, but, but more fundamentally, kind of showed that there was this conflation of the types of information we manage and which are pretty, A, consistent and, and B, potentially quite some quite specific to what we do and the systems that we use to manage that information, which are often the same systems that people doing completely different jobs from us use. Yeah. Um, so to me, a good kind of, whether it's one person or a group of people, you, you kind of need both of those perspectives from a data world lens, you need to be able to abstract the world away from, you know, is it Amazon, is it Google, is it Salesforce, is it Microsoft, to like, what are what are the actual concepts that we're dealing with here? What kind of questions do people need to be able to answer irregardless of the systems that they're using to answer those? Yeah. But then in, actually, in, in order to enact that in the real world, you still need to have the people who are like, yeah, all right, that's great, Ian, but you're going to need firewalls you're going to need for microsoft dynamics you're going to need you know these kind of security measures like this is how you actually build that stuff yeah. and i think where 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 i enjoy working in highways england is when we get to have those constructive conversations where it's not those two camps fighting each other for for budget or investment or or you know importance it's about us delivering that stuff together that's great i'm also curious around uh, data, I'm not a data expert, as I've kind of mentioned uh, in, in the podcast and off, offline. Um, <clears throat> the cleanliness of the data, the quality of the data, how do you ensure that the data that you're getting is actually fit for purpose? That's, um, that's a tough one. I think the fit for purpose is the right phrase because the level of accuracy and condition that one needs from a data set very much depends on what you need to get out of it. Um, uh, and some of the, and it's almost a function of uh, quantity as well as quality, isn't it? So, you know, if we're doing machine learning, if you have enough information and if that information isn't overly biased, you can probably work around a lack of data quality. But if what you're actually doing is trying to provide very specific information to say a bridge engineer on a particular asset, there is no quantity, but you need to make sure that the few bits of information you do provide are, are, are pretty bloody good. Yeah. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about the value of data. Uh, our team's done some pretty um, thought leading, I'm using that awful phrase again, um, mm. some, some pretty groundbreaking work into the, the economic value of data in the public sector. Um, but there's also a real focus on getting the data governance right because it's not always obvious particularly in a in an organization like ours where as i say a lot of the systems are old and have been around for ages and the people that originally built them have gone on and done greater things it's not always obvious who owns the data in these systems who's responsible for it so if you do find a problem there isn't always that feedback loop for anyone to go and fix it it, it kind of just persists and nothing undermines confidence in analysis and solutions quicker than opening up a random table and realizing that all the values don't reflect reality. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Which brings me on to another interesting question, which might be the, might be the thing. What keeps you up at night, Ian, as a, as a leader in this space? <laughs> uh, you mean apart from just a general sense of existential dread? <laughs> um, I think 
the thing that so we we we're about to embark on a pretty big piece of work to create uh, what we've termed a, a common data model for how we how we construct our assets, um, and that's really about uniting um, a lot of the different professions that are involved in building and operating roads, from you know your people that do all the, the costs to the people that procure things to the people that pour the concrete to the people that do the designs probably not in that order to be fair yeah. um, they all kind of live they use a similar language but they live in different data worlds you know they use different systems they manage their different data different ways they use different applications and so rather we're trying to break down those kind of boundaries of specification where they all have their own different kind of breakdown structures and data specs and data dictionaries and trying to create something akin to a semantic layer that, that sits over the top of that and can begin to be the foundation to that kind of ontological view of the organization that I was talking about earlier, mm. um, which all sounds really great in, in, <laughs> in theory. But when I wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes I worry that it's just, just not possible, that there's just too many different groups of people with their own kind of uh storied historical ways of, of working that you know you're just trying to move too much uh volume at once you're trying to change too many minds that there really are fundamentally different languages out there even in the same industry and, and that it's just not going to be possible to, to meaningfully represent all of that or it's going to turn into one big giant academic exercise that creates the perfect hypothetical data model but is impossible to make it meaningful or useful to actual you know yeah. people who are trying to build stuff so yeah. Yeah, it's still going to give it a go but that it's it's yeah it's that worry about are we just trying to create the encyclopedia galactic of it that, that worries me sometimes <laughs> i love that terminology and it kind of speaks to your passion which is around making a difference it has to make it's not just about doing the it's not an output it's an outcome uh, that can be useful again and again and again so i'm curious around this you know being cto confessions host um what would make that easier what would make this aspect of the job easier i, th I think part of it's about finding a, a visually appealing way of presenting data back to people and it's, it's not so much data in the sense of like a dashboard but data in the sense of an understanding of how things work so when you really awkward way of saying it but when you when you boil down an ontology it's basically just a really really big complicated mind map and and, and most people can deal with mind maps but, but get flustered when you start talking about ontologies so what we as an industry need to do or a profession is um find it easier to make to help people understand how data is structured that doesn't require them to think about themselves as a data person but actually it's just about playing back to them you know what they do on a day-to-day -day basis in a structured logical way that can then be replicated in the data architecture so that was all a bit abstract but if i can sit down with a bridge engineer and say and give them a mind map of this is how i think the information for a bridge is works you know you've got your your construction information, you've got your maintenance information, you've got someone called a maintainer that goes in and fixes these things called assets and just walk through that mind map, make sure it actually reflects their understanding of how the world works. And then on the back of that, go away and update my machine readable model in the database of how that works. That That's a really challenging thing to do, but if you can do it, you start to get 
you start to make sure that your data infrastructure actually reflects how things work on the ground and therefore, I hope, makes it fundamentally more useful and more accessible to yeah. people that do not consider themselves to be data persons. I love that. Yeah, take away the, um, almost like democratise the use of it, you know, <laughs> they don't yeah. need to be data experts, that's your job, you know, you just yeah. make it uh, useful to them. I, I love that. Um, Coming on to your teams, um, I imagine that you've got, uh, you know, teams of people working on this. How do you get the best out of them? What, was, what is your tips around kind of communication and, and aligning to this vision that you described? So we have a... How do I say this? Um, the, the vast majority of our work is done through and with the supply chain. Uh, and that's that's true both in the sense of how we build the roads, but also in the sense of how we build our data infrastructure. Um, like many organizations, we do not have, we've kind of come from a traditional IT department that was more about, you know, making sure people's laptops worked. We don't have a huge established data capability. Um, we're, we're growing, but there are kind of limitations as to how quickly we can grow, most of which are not of our own making, uh, but come down to things like regulations around headcount size and that sort of thing. So the vast majority of our delivery um, goes through the su suppliers with, with our small core team working as kind of product owners and trying to make sure that we're getting value from um, from the supply chain and the procurement that we do. Um, yeah. And I spend a lot of time thinking about how best to procure competitively, how to make sure that we don't get locked into proprietary solutions or how do we make sure that we don't have any one supplier you know take pick up such a big part of the work that they become the default choice um how do we create collaboration between suppliers who usually compete with one another um how do we surface up enough useful information in advance of going to market so that newcomers can actually bid with confidence and then once they've landed, how do we make sure that our outcomes and our priorities are clear enough that they can go away and run a dynamic, flexible, agile process, but actually give us the the, the value that we need at the end of it. Um, and yeah, bloody hell, it's hard to get that all right. I don't think, I think we screw it up every time, but the, the goal is to screw it up as, as little as yeah. possible um, and get better at that. Oh, and what's one tip uh, around that area of getting this current procurement right that would be useful to other tech leaders and, and people in your kind of space? I think the thing that people are afraid of, and I've, I've never completely understood why, is is working in, in the open. So I think having come from supply side, having been a consultant trying mm -hmm. to sell into um, big organizations like Highways England, in my case, it was mostly network rail, I, it was always really hard to not look for privileged information, like not have a sense of what was happening before other people did, but just understand the philosophy of what they were, sorry, there's some noise in the background. Understand the philosophy of what they're trying to do. So where are they trying to take their architecture? What are they trying to do with their data? You know, so that you could kind of understand how to, what you could offer in that space. So we try and publish as much of our technical architecture and much of our service design as possible. Uh, not so much publicly, but in a way that's accessible to the supply chain. So if I'm talking to a new supplier, I can just say, you know, everything we've built to date and the way that we use it is here on this SharePoint. You can go and read all about it. Uh, 
and therefore you know i'm not going to give you any work right now but next time you put a bid in you'll be able to bid with an understanding of what we've already got rather than that being information that's privileged to people that happen to have worked with us before i love that yeah i think that's really really important like clearly we don't share any like security sensitive stuff we're not publishing our ip addresses or anything but in terms of the fundamental like this is what we got and this is how we use it you need to just yeah. get out there so people understand you know what does data mean in highways england brilliant and in terms of your leadership and your teams what's it been like during this crazy covid period working remotely or do you always work remotely yeah i feel like we were lucky enough to have a bit of a advanced practice for that so our, by the nature of our work, we have offices all over the country um, and we've always been really good at um, recruiting from across the con- company, so country rather. So most people, there's not, there's, sorry, I'm saying this really badly. There's, there's people that work for Highways England all over England, as, as it should be, you know? Um, and, and consequently, we've always been an organization that's made a lot of use of conference calls and, and conferencing software and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, the pandemic put that to extremes, mm. um, but I, I feel like it was less of an adjustment for us um, than, than for other organizations because we'd, we'd kind of been working halfway that way anyway. Still massive impact on our IT department in, in terms of kind of speeding up some of our uh you know, technical debt, getting our VPNs working better, getting more bandwidth into our servers, that sort of thing. Um, and they did they did heroics in the early days of the pandemic just to make sure that the systems could take that extra load. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as an organization, we're, we're good at that. I think I'm getting to the point where I really miss being in the room with people and really discussing ideas. I think the, the bit that is really hard remotely is that kind of early gestation stage of, of projects where you're not at the point where you have like bullet pointed powerpoints ready to describe what you're trying to do you are generally trying to solve a problem with people and, and you need a whiteboard and you need some time and space um and yeah i really miss that I'm, yeah i'm sure i'm not alone so ian i imagine you know as you're kind of putting this stuff together you're hitting some form of engineering challenges what are the challenges you're facing as you start to ramp this up uh, i think there's there's kind of an internal challenges and then there's there's broader IT challenges. So um, in, internally, probably the, the biggest challenge is, is creating a... So we talked about how the vast majority of the work is done by the supply chain um, and, and that we're trying to create this environment where we can have multiple suppliers collaborating in a single space. And, and that's been really important to me because... I think a lot of the data fundamentals are stuff that we need to own and that need to happen in our estate. So I'd much rather have five different suppliers working in our IT environment, building capability that we can reuse than I would having have having five suppliers each offering their own kind of walled garden for particular purposes, for, for all the reasons that I think I've talked about at length today. Um, it's really easy to do that in theory again but it's harder to do it in practice because at the end of the day you know most of these environments aren't set up to have fully collaborative working like someone still needs to be the sysadmin at the end of the day Um, you're going to have different levels of competence with different levels of suppliers so an organization like highways england we try and take 
advantage of the skills of you know the big kind of white label system integrators but we also have a lot of niche suppliers that, that probably understand the subject matter a lot more but maybe don't have the same uh cloud cap development capabilities to be fair yes um, so how do you create an environment that where people can build in a consistent a coherent manner using a consistent tool set so it can be reused over and over again mm. but that is actually able to flex to sort of you know give a bit of a, a an easy learning curve to some of the suppliers that aren't used to working in that way um, yeah. we definitely haven't figured that one out yet <laughs> definitely in cases where we've we've kind of just brought a supplier in to do something and they, they've just fallen at the first hurdle because they're just not used to working in a kind of infrastructure as code DevOps environment. Um, and yeah, how do you incentivize the other suppliers to do knowledge share to their to people that they're probably going to be competing with the next week? So Ian, what advice would you give to aspiring leaders out there, tech leaders or data people kind of entering the data space? So I, I think I can I consider myself still an aspiring tech leader, I, I, and I think a big part of that is um, and it's going to sound really obvious, but just w willingness to learn and and crucially willingness to admit that you don't have all the answers. Like it's definitely something I had to adjust to. You know, when I finally got a job title that started with head of, was dealing with the idea that I now needed to know everything one could possibly know about data architecture and engineering, and and I don't. And I think I've been pretty clear about that. Yes. Um, so that you you know, no matter what your rank is, there's always going to be people that understand things better than you. You need to be able to ask them questions, learn from them, don't patronize them, and and, and be be flexible in that respect. Um, whether they're senior to you, junior to you, or or somewhere in between. It's really important absolutely respect that authenticity you know just be honest mm -hmm. and and uh, be vulnerable you know because uh, it allows other people to kind of step up and support you and stuff and are there any books or podcasts or uh, things that you have helped you along in your journey and inspired you so there's one book that i always go back to um and i think it's it's kind of the it's not a technical book per se. It's a book about technology. It's called um, Radical Technologies. Um, and it's by an author called Adam Greenfield, um, who I was lucky enough to speak to a few months ago. Very, cool. very cool guy. Um, real deep thinker. Adam uh, has written quite a few papers and, and books, and I think he's got another one in the works now. But Radical Technologies is a great place to start. And it, it really kind of... It's, it's a bit of a cautionary tale, but it really sort of stops you from getting overcome by the hubris and really just, you know, cautions you to realize that not all of the things you do are going to work out great. And you need to be aware of the, the biases and the unintended consequences that could result from what you're doing. Love it. I'm going to add that to my book mountain to read, my Himalayan book mountain. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it reminds me of uh, the Black Mirror series, you know, where the other side of the technology kind of um, uh, story, you know, where it, 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 you know, and I think it's good to be aware of these things, you know, so it's almost like uh, a searchlight. We, we can then see where this could go, you know, and preempt it, you know, and, and, yeah. and maybe kind of tune it differently. So that's brilliant. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm going to pretend to be a tech genie for a second. OK, Ian, uh, imagine that I've turned into a, a genie of sorts, you know, pigtail, blue, blue skin. What's the wish as a, as a tech leader? What's your wish in your space? 
What, what I would love to see happen is, at the moment, the, the public sector and the private sector are kind of heading in slightly different directions. You know, you've got all of the, the capability that we're developing in Highways England, and then you've got kind of the, the huge tech giants and, and the customer-facing applications that, you know, as much as money we, as we might spend, you know, they will be spending hundreds or thousands of times more on, on those. And it kind of feels like they're evolving into separate ecosystems. Um, you know, if, if there's been a theme to there and connectivity and integration, I, I would love to see those two worlds come together, not in a way that just allows, you know, big tech to take advantage of and profit from the public sector, but in a way that actually enables them to help us uh, and, and to continue to allow us to um, benefit the taxpayer and the traveling public um, without giving away what, what makes us special. So Ian, as we come to the full stop, the end of the arc, okay, what's your gift, your key takeaway that you'd like to leave for the tech leaders out there, the men and women kind of working on this data and the technology space? I mean, one of them is it's all to play for. You know, there's there is so much we can do in, in infrastructure in the built environment that, that hasn't been done. Um, you know, it, it's still early days in terms of taking advantage of even the most basic data, but but also like sensors and IoT and digital twins and um, and the cloud. Uh, so, you know, if if you if you're inclined to come and help, uh, great place to be. Uh, it's a really good chance to to make a difference. Brilliant, excellent. Thank you for that, Ian. Thank you for coming on board. It's been great speaking to you, sir. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.